We uh, have quite a bit of material to cover. I may not cover it all, but I trust that whatever little bit I can say, the Holy Spirit is going to take it. Because you don't need to, all God needs to say is one word, and our souls will be healed. So I'm not under any pressure to cover any material, okay? I'm, I'm under grace to speak at the anointing of God. Enables me, amen. Hallelujah. And so having said that, my text this morning is going to be taken from Second uh, Kings. We're going to be reading 6 and 7. But I wanted to jump off from what Pastor said last week. Pastor made certain comments, and the one thing that uh, stood out with me, he said this. He said, we own nothing. Everything belongs to God. We are only stewards or custodians of everything. And if you think about it, in the book of uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 29, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace. And so when we received him, we became stewards or custodians of the grace of God. Amen? As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter 4.10, the Bible calls us stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then he comes back and says in uh, 1 Corinthians 4.2, he says, moreover, it is required that a man of a steward, that a man be found faithful. So we, are all, have, we all have a duty under God to be stewards of the manifold grace of God that he has given unto us. So we are custodians of the grace of God, and we have a duty under him to be stewards of that grace. But I ask you today, if we were to, the church, and I'm not speaking necessarily of this church, but if the shoe fits, wear it. If the church were put under trial today, if somebody were to accuse us of being faithful stewards of God, would we be found guilty? Or would we be acquitted as having treated the grace of God that is upon our lives in vain? And what kind of evidence would uh, a prosecuting attorney provide to prosecute this case in support of his uh, theory? Let me suggest to you, in a, uh, a research study uh, done by the Barna Organization, a Barna Research, in a nationwide study, a cross-section of the American population was asked if the Christian churches in their areas were relevant to the way that they lived. And to that, only 28% responded that they strongly agreed that the church was relevant to the way they lived. In other words, 72% of the people surveyed said that the church was irrelevant, basically, in their lives. And then we think about a nation like Nigeria. Nigeria is reputed to have the uh, strongest growing Christian base. But Nigeria, year in, year out, ranks amongst the top 10 of the most corrupt nations in the world. So we have an increase in churches, but there is no corresponding transformation of our society. I would submit that in evidence. How about Europe? If we look at Europe, churches are being turned into mosques. There are parts of uh, the United Kingdom that you go today and Islam is the preferred religion. And as a matter of fact, if most of you that have uh, been uh, listening to the news, you hear about Charlie Hebdo, you hear about the things that are happening in France, you hear about uh, Denmark, Belgium, you hear about Germany, and all the things that are happening in Europe. Remember who first brought the gospel to Africa? Europeans. And so there is a siege in the nation of Europe it's as though darkness is taking over that land. Well, I don't have to go too far. How about the USA here? 
where our government is having a debate about what we call the people that are beheading, raping, and torturing Christians every day. Are they Islamic fundamentals? Are they, what are they? Or are they, um, whatever you call them. The people have no illusions about who they are. But there is a debate as to what we call them. So I submit this to you in evidence. If we are the light, why is the world so dark? Amen? There is, uh, most of you have heard the fable of the frog in the, in the, uh, the frog in the pot. There was an experiment that was done. They said if you put a frog in a, a, a pot of water, put it over a flame and turn up the flame gradually, just a little bit at a time, that the frog will essentially cook because the frog adjusts and regulates its temperature to adjust to the surrounding temperature and takes on, essentially, you can cook the frog with its own complicity. And, and, and some of us would that, that say, okay, well, we're sitting from this perspective. We say, well, why doesn't the frog at some point ask itself the question, why do I sit here till I perish? <laughs> yeah? But isn't that the analogy of the church today? By the way, that question is not a new question. And that's where I take my text from. Today I want to talk to you about why do we sit here till we perish? Redeeming the times. Amen? And so, to, to get to that story, I'm going to set up the context. Now, in 2 Kings 6, a series of events that had happened. Essentially, the Syrians were being rascally, very, very rascally. And they were constantly evading, uh, invading Samaria, just harassing the people. And, and so, what had happened was that the king of uh, uh, Syria would uh, get together with his people and say, let's go do some... Let's just go harass those Israelis, okay, those Samarians. And as they would sit in their offices to draw up their battle plans and to conspire, God would whisper into the ears of his servant, and the servant would go whisper into the ear of the king, and the king would take immediate defensive action, not just once, but the Bible says this happened more than one time. And so the king of Syria became very, very frustrated, because any time he conspired or he conceived any thought in his mind, the people of God had an answer and a, a plan ready to respond to him. So the man got frustrated. He said, look, which one of us in our camp is a, a, a spy? Who is on the side of Israel here? And they told him, no, 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 no. But there is a man in Israel, a prophet in Israel, and that this man is telling the king the things that you conspire in your bedchambers. So if you think about the context in which that is happening, if the people of God are to be likened to the church, if the prophet and the sons of the prophets are to be likened to the church, essentially, the church set the tone for the nation. The king would come to the prophet to seek counsel as to what to do. When anything needed to be done in the nation, they went to the church. As a matter of fact, this, was, this became so irritating to the king that he wanted to take out the prophet. Right? You remember that? So he sent an encampment around the prophet. And the, prophet, the prophet's uh, servant got up in the morning and, and was going about his regular duties, looked out, and the city had been surrounded and besieged by this Syrian army. And the guy runs back to the prophet, to Elisha, and says, look, these people have surrounded us. And I can imagine that Elijah got up, shook himself, and said, why are you hassling me today? And he said, God, open his eyes. 
that he may see that those that be for us are greater than they that be against them. And essentially, that played itself out. If you read the rest of the story, that those people that surrounded uh, Dothan, which is where Elisha lived, essentially were taken captive. What am I saying to you? That the church had an influence. And as long as the church exercised that voice and that influence in the nation, that every resource was provided to the church. The people of God didn't have to worry. Uh, is Russia misbehaving today? Because God had an answer for that. Is uh, um, ISIS, are they acting up today? God had an answer for that. There was nothing you threw at them that they couldn't deal with because they were walking and walking for the will of the Father. Amen? Amen. But then something happens when you get to the bottom of the story that Ben-Hadad, a king of Syria, then lays a siege around Israel. And those of you that are wondering, what happened? Because remember, they had tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and and nothing happened. But ultimately, they were able to lay a, a siege around Samaria. And things got pretty ugly in a hurry. And if you go back to the scripture, to Second uh, Kings 6 in 32, what happened? What happened? Why were they eventually able to succeed? If you go to verse 32 of that uh, uh, chapter and verse, it says that the, as a matter of fact, let me read for you. It said here, it says, but Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. So essentially, the people of God withdrew into their quarters. They disengage from society. They disengage from community. And ultimately, you don't hear the voice of Elisha again until you get to chapter 7, verse 1. And that's where I'm going to pick up from. Oh, God, help me, please. (laughs) And from verse 1, this says this. So basically, what I've set up for you now is the context. That if we do nothing, we'll get exactly that, nothing. The church did nothing. And the enemies of the church took over. And like the frog, I guess they sat there. And they sat there. And they sat there. Let me describe to you some of the consequences of what happened. They said there was such a famine in Samaria that a donkey's head. Remember, the donkey was what they used for transportation. So they began to eat the means of their sustenance. They turned to cannibalism. In fact, if you read the story, two women conspired to cook their children to eat their children. They said a, a donkey... A donkey's head sold for um, uh, 80 shekels. Let me tell you what 80 shekels would uh, translate to basically in the current times. A a, uh, half shekel was the annual tithe that a uh, Jew was required to bring to the temple. And it was worth about 8 grams of silver. 8 grams of silver today is worth about $5. So a half shekel was about $5. So a shekel would have been how much? $10. $10. So 80 shekels would have been how much? $800. Now, some of you, are, you have very sophisticated tastes. And I know you like crack and caviar. But how many of you are going to pay $800 for caviar? How many of you here are going to be willing to pay $800 for a donkey's head? That's how seriously. In fact, he said a, a, a quarter of a cab of uh, dove's droppings. 
and for the sake of decency, I will not describe it. <laughs> but a quarter of a cup of dove droppings, he said it sold for five shekels. Okay? Five shekels would be the equivalent of how much, based on the conversion that we're talking about. About a quarter of a cup, a cup, about $50 basically is what they were paying for a quarter. That's about a pint. I'm sorry. A cup would be about a pint. A pint of dove droppings was about $50. Uh, have you tried put together a donkey's head and a pint of dove droppings? What a delicacy, right? That's the, that's the uh, circumstance and the situation in which they lived. So that takes me to uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, basically, what happened was then the, the, king, uh, uh, the king got irate. They blamed Elijah for what was happening, and rightly so. And so they wanted to take out Elijah, Elisha. They wanted to take out Elisha. The man said, I'm going to have Elisha's head. So he sends his army to go get Elisha. Here's what happens. When the church fails to do what it needs to do, is it, is, it, is it a wonder that the enemy comes after us? And so that's what was happening here. So uh, when uh, the king came for Elisha, uh, this dialogue ensues. Then Elisha said, then they said, look, uh, Elisha, this is what is happening. You are to blame for this. Elisha said, don't worry about it. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seer of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the king, the man of God, and said, Look, if the Lord will make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four leprous men, four leprous men. Understand the context of leprosy in olden days Samaria. That lepers were the outcasts of society. They were living on the margins of society. Nobody wanted to touch or deal with their leper because if you touch a leper, you became ceremonially unclean. And so they lived in the margins of society. If a leper was walking across the street, they would have to announce themselves. Some of them would have bells and announce themselves. Unclean, unclean, unclean. They would ring that bell. Can you imagine if your life was defined by the things that limited you from interacting with people? The things that put you on the outskirts and the boundaries of society. The things that marginalized you from the commonwealth of nations. The things that made it impossible for you to interact not just with man but with God. You couldn't go into the temple of God. That was what God chose. That was who God chose to deal with this situation. I don't know what you feel today marginalizes you and excludes you. But that limitation that you think life has placed on you. That limitation that you think circumstances and situations have placed upon you, that may be God's key to deliver a nation. That may be what God is going to use to bring a deliverance, not just to you, to your your circumstances, but to a community and a nation that's looking up to you. So an officer, and I'll jump to three. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? You remember the question the frog should have asked itself? That's where the frog got it from. Or should have gotten the question from. Why do we sit here? Uh, Where is it? Three. Four. Okay. If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. If we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. 
Now therefore, come let us surrender to the army of Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall only die. Now, what the Bible leaves out, in DK's version of the Bible, what the, the word that is included thereafter is anyway, we shall only die anyway. <laughs> Amen? And they arose at twilight uh, to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses. Now, these people began to hear sounds in their heads. They began to hear voices in their head. Essentially, bottom line is they fled and they left all of their stuff. And so these lepers, these beggars, these people that lived on the outskirts threw themselves a mighty party. Everything they wanted was there. Gold was abundant. Silver was abundant. Food was not an issue. In fact, the Bible said they carried so much, they went and took it away, came back and grabbed some more. That's how much stuff was there. But at some point, between their getting and their gathering, something occurred to them. They said to themselves, what we're doing is not good. For this is a day of good news, yet we keep it to ourselves. If we do not do something about this, some kind of calamity is going to come upon us. And I'm wondering, is there a calamity that is losing, looming upon our church today because we have failed to do something with the good news that we have? And so, the, the church must recover its voice. The church must recover its mandate. There was an apostolic mandate on the church that we need to find back. Now, how do we find it? If you go back to 2 Kings 6, there was a story about the uh, axe head. How many of you remember the axe head? The sons of the prophets had gone to Cotwood to build a bigger place for them. And they, 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 apparently in the process of chopping the wood, the axe head fell off and fell into the water. And the man said, look, this thing is borrowed. So Elijah asked him, where did the axe head fall? If we're going to answer the question of how the church gets its uh, voice back, we need to ask, where did we drop the axe head? Where did the axe head fall? If you think about it, the man of God, they, like I said again, if they represent the church, the, the axe head is the cutting head of the axe. The question could be restated, where did the church lose its cutting edge? Where did the church lose its... I have a few things, I have a few points. I'm going to try and get to them. First of all, we need to revisit the mandate. We need to recapture the message. Number three, we need to reposition for power. Number four, we need to remember our past. We need to reorder our priorities. What do I mean by revisiting the, man, the, revisiting the, uh, the mandate? In Matthew 28, the Bible says this, go you into the world and make disciples of all nations. Now, we've always read that to mean go into the world, uh, conduct evangelistic campaigns and make converts. But the call, the call to the church is not the call to make converts. The call to the church is actually the call to make disciples. Because converts do not change the world. It is disciples that change the world. And discipleship is not an easy process. It involves an expenditure of time, an expenditure of emotions, an expenditure of resources. It will cost you your time. Some of you have heard me preach about discipleship in this church. The three understandings of discipleship. That a disciple would have his whatever you call the people that they are discipling. They would <laughs> Basically... Those people would literally move in with their discipler. 
they would literally move in and take on their attitude. Some would grow their beards like the people that, that was discipling them. They would begin to sound like them. It's funny, I was teaching in, um, in uh, Abuja, and the pastor in whose church I was ministering is one of Pastor Bakary's spiritual sons. And I was watching him as he was introducing the message. And every now and again, he would say something and do this. Does it, who does this? Does anybody remember? One day, and suddenly he was taken. Pastor Bakary. I, I, somebody called this to my attention. Every now and again, I'll be teaching, I'll say Kai. Does anybody recognize that? Yes. So, a disciple would take on the characteristics of their discipler. They would look like them, they would talk like them, they would uh, sound like them. The other thing was that the discipler would wash the feet. So, the first understanding is to move in with. The second understanding is to walk with, to be found in the way with. Three understanding. Each one of them requires a commitment of time. It is not a glitzy, it's not a glamorous job. It will cost you your time. Your disciple will call you when it is least convenient, and you must answer that call. You think about those of you that have raised children. Raising children, especially when they're babies, is not a, it's not a sexy job. If you've ever changed a diaper, you recognize that that stuff smells, man. It doesn't look good. But do you know at some point when those children grow up and call you and look in your face and call you mommy and daddy and tell you I love you, is it not worth it? So the call to the church is the call to make disciples. So I'm going to ask you today, in whose life are you investing today? Paul says you have many teachers. It doesn't happen from the pulpit here. Paul says you have many teachers, but you do not have many fathers. The process of discipleship is the process of raising children. Whose life are you, are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? How many of you are disciples of Christ today? How many of you will say you're Christian? In whose life are you investing? Whose story are you becoming a part of? When the story of their life is told, are they going to mention you, if not for the grace of God on this man's life, or if not for the grace of God upon this woman's life, where would I be today? That's the call upon the church. It's not necessary to go out and preach. That's the first step. Conversion is the first step in the process. Discipleship is the ultimate goal. So find somehow, somebody, some person in whom you can invest your life in. So that, like Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. He says, Timothy is a worthy son. Let that be the story of your life. We are talking about affinity groups. The best area in which you can do that. Intimate settings is an affinity group. If you do not have an affinity group, find one that you can connect to. Because that's where you build those relationships, those mentoring relationships that allow you to father people. That's the call to the church. Look, what we do here is good. But where the rubber meets the road is in those small settings where I can look at you and tell you, look, there's a grace of God upon your life. It is, you're too valuable in the sight of God to just sit down and come to church Sunday in, Sunday out. God wants to use you for dramatic things. Oh, God, God, God has something in me. Yes, how can I develop those talents? Come, let me show you. That's the call upon the church. So we need to rethink again. We need to uh, uh, revisit the mandate. The next thing I want to do is talk about recapture the message. And I'm trying to blow these things through these things as quickly as I can. Now, faith has been taught as the means by which you 
manipulate the word of God. And if you can believe it strong enough, you get all of the things that you need to uh, essentially uh, act as, as though there's a seal of favor of God upon your life. Because you have many cars, you have many houses, you wear the finest of clothes. That's what faith has been presented to be. But is that really what, what, what the Bible teaches? Is that really the essence of faith? Pastor talked, some, talked here about the uh, principle of first mention. The Bible says in Romans 4.3 that Abraham believed God and he was credited unto him as righteousness. And therefore, Abraham is known as the father of faith today. But if you go back to the life of Abraham, what did Abraham really believe God for? The principle of first mention, that specific text, text that Abraham believed God and it was granted to him as righteousness. You go back to Genesis 15, reading from 1 to 6, and you find the mention of that. The, the God comes to Abraham and said, look, I'm your, I, I, I'm your great and exceeding reward. Okay? And Abraham says, what are you going to do for me since I have no son? What does being your great and exceeding reward have to do with having a son? Well, go back further to Genesis 12, because that's when God first calls Abraham. He says, look, I will make you great, and you, the families of the nations, will be blessed. And so all of God's promises to Abraham was about the nations, the kind of nation that he was going to. He said, look, the stars of the sky, the seas on the sand shore, that's how your, your, your progeny is going to be. That's how your generations are going to be. And it is in that context that the Bible tells us that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham did not believe God for mighty mansions and mighty cars. He did not believe God to build castles in the sky and to dwell in them. He did not believe God for all of the things that we think are a mark of faith today. But did Abraham have those things? Come with me. In Genesis 24, uh, verse 35, the Bible, when Eliezer goes to get a wife for uh, Isaac, Abraham's son, and then eventually Laban's daughters usher him into Laban's house, um, Eliezer begins to give a, uh, a uh, resume of his master, as it were. And, and here's what he says. I'm going to, do you have Genesis 24, 35? Okay, it says, the Lord has blessed my master greatly, not just blessed him, but blessed him greatly, and he has become great, and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and male and female servants and camels and donkeys. Exactly. In 24.1, in fact, it says God had made him rich and truly prospered him. So Abraham, looking to do the will of God in the nations, Abraham, looking to serve God in the nations, not only serves God in the nations, but got all the things that we chase at. It's like, it's like asking for, um, it's like uh, looking for potato, okay, mashed potato, and saying, give me gravy. You know that if you get the mashed potato, the gravy comes with it. Why have we put the cart before the horse? That's essentially what we're doing here. Abraham was exceedingly blessed, not because he went, look, look let me tell you this. If you make the pursuit of gold, your primary life's purpose, you will not get gold and you will not get God. But if you make the pursuit of God, your primary life's objective, you will not only get God, but you get all the gold that you need. Why is that? Because gold will not control you. By the way, Abraham, in spite of all of these things he had, if you read in the book of Hebrews, the Bible tells us that Abraham, when he got all his wealth and all his silver and all his gold, 
did not live in a huge mansion. He could afford to build himself a mansion. But no, the Bible says he preferred to dwell in tents because he was a looking for a better place, a better city, a city that had foundations. Who builder and maker is God? See, Abraham understood that eternal things are the real things, that the earthly things are the temporal things. Perhaps we need to revisit the message. We need to recapture that message, that faith is not the means by which we get things. Because if your life is consistent of all of the stuff you can get, you need to get a real life. I'm sorry. You need to get a real life. Because things will only leave you empty at the end of the day. It is said that we, what is it, that um, we, uh, uh, we, we, lo- we should love people and use things, but instead we use people and love things. Amen? Now, go with me very quickly to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. How should we properly use our faith? How should we properly use our faith? Uh, what's the time? What time do I have? I'm up to 12.05, right? Okay. How should we properly use our faith? Go with me very quickly to Hebrews 11.32. It says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to talk of Gideon and Barak and... Not Barack Obama, by the way. <laughs> Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued nations, worked righteousness, obtained promise, and stopped the mouths of lions. When was the last time you used your faith to, to believe God for the nations? When, did you, when was the last time you asked God for the kind of faith that subdues nations, the kind of faith that allows you to work righteousness, the kind of faith that allows you to live a witness of God wherever you go, the kind of faith that allows you to live a fragrance of Christ wherever he might take you? When did you, was the last time you believed God for that kind of faith? It's very easy to believe God for cards. My God, I need a job. My God, I need a job. And God is saying to you, if you get that job, what are you going to do with it? Because your job is really a mission field. Amen? All right, let me, uh, so I'm going to challenge you. We're we're talking in 2015 about noising his fame abroad. Right? Pastors told us we're believing God for the supernatural things. That is really what we need to begin to believe God for. We were in a meeting on Friday, and God laid something on my spirit, because there's so much we want to do. But we look at all of the great plans we have and the limitation of resources, and we ask ourselves, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And it was like the Lord dropped in my spirit, get a vision, God will take care of the rest of it. Get a vision of what you want to do. Do not be limited by what you do not have. Open your eyes to the bigness of your God. You've heard me say in this church before that when God called Abraham and told him to look up, it says, can you count the stars in the sky? And Abraham said, it was impossible. Can you count the sands in the seashore? It was impossible to do that. It says, so shall your, uh, shall your offspring be. Now, it's easy for us to look at that text of scripture and say maybe God was saying he was going to give him multiple, many, many children. But that's not what the verse of scripture, it may be that, but that's not what I believe he was saying. God was saying, look at the vastness of the universe. Look at as big as the sun is, 
It takes the earth 360 days to revolve around the sun. The earth spins around its axis 1,000 miles an hour. 24 hours, 24,000 uh, miles it spins around. Think about the vastness of the universe, how all of the planets are so greatly and so uh, finely proportioned that if the earth was any closer to the sun, we'd all be cooking and frying now. If it was just an inch farther away from the sun, we'd all be freezing now. Look at the proportionality in space. Look at the way your systems work, how you go to bed at night and wake up in the morning. You don't know what transpires in between. Think about your consciousness, how you remember things. A lot of us can remember the things that happened to us, how finely that system is tuned. Yet we know nothing about it. And God was saying, if I can create all of this vastness of this universe, look at the universe, beyond how your, your, the, your imagination can even grasp, before, beyond what your eyes can see, what is a son, a simple son that I cannot give him to you? So it was a question about change your perspective, not count the stars. And if we're going to do great things for God, I'm going to challenge us this year. Let us change our perspective. Let us begin to get a perspective like Abraham. Let us begin to see the bigness of our God, not the bigness of our problem. Let us begin to see the grandness of what God wants to accomplish, not the limitation of our resources. Because you get that vision, resources will come with it. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So use your faith meaningfully. Now we need to recover the power. And I'm not going to spend too much time on that except to say this. That Jesus said to the uh, first uh, disciples, he said, look, he says, tarry in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere in Acts 2. He says, but you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall become my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the utmost ends of the earth. I don't know where we got this impression that the Holy Spirit is something that's, someone that's supposed to give us goosebumps in church. Because the power of the Holy Spirit is really the power to witness. And if you want to see the demonstration of the Spirit of God, if you want to see the miracles that the Bible talks about, blinders, eyes open, lame feet walking, deaf ears open, it's not going to happen. It may happen in church, but primarily God has ordained that to happen in the mission field. I'm going to tell you we went to Zimbabwe. And I was uh, part, as part of a mission team. And I was part of the ministry group. And I was leading the counseling desk. And this lady came up to, to the desk. And she looked like she had it all together. I mean, the, and we were ministering in a poor rural community. I mean, the way she looked, you could tell that this lady did not believe, belong in this community. That something was going on with her. So she came, looked like she had it all together. And she had all of the right answers. So immediately I knew she had some exposure to the church. She had some exposure to the, to, uh, to the word of God. And as I began to engage this woman, the Holy Spirit began to drop insights in me. You know that thing they call word of knowledge? It doesn't just happen on TV for Benny Hinn. God began to give me specific things about this woman. I began to talk to this woman. And immediately in my presence, this woman began, began to wilt. I mean, it's like, like a flower that was deprived of water. It began, she began to wilt. Eventually, she broke and started to weep and started to cry and then began to tell me the things that were happening. I said, look, God is sharing these things to you, not because he wants to embarrass you, 
but he wants to let you know that there is help for you. And that's not, for me, that's not something that's normative. You know, in other words, it's not a normal occurrence. But I've seen that happen multiple times. And so when I come and tell you that the power of the Holy Spirit is real, it's not because I read it in a book. It's because I've lived it out in my own ministry. See, God wants to demonstrate his, his power in the nation. He's not looking to conceal his power. He's looking to reveal his power. But he has to find the proper context to do that. Because if the context isn't right, it just becomes no, nothing more than a magic show. And we're entertained, but there's no lasting impact. The proper context for the demonstration of that power is in the place of witnessing. And you, now, I'm not just talking about preaching the word, that is right. But you also witness by your lifestyle. Because as I was telling the children this morning, there's absolutely, if you leave me to my own devices, I am more corrupt than the most corrupt person on the face of the earth. If God doesn't help me, there's no help for me. So I need the Holy Spirit to live the life that I should. But I also need the Holy Spirit to share the gospel, whether by word or whether by deed. And so I'm going to challenge you. If you want to see the demonstration of the power of God, as we begin to noise his fame abroad, we're going to go to communities where they need a demonstration. Paul said, I have not come to you with the finely crafted uh, words of man's wisdom, but I've come with a demonstration of the spirit of, and of power. If you want to see the Holy Ghost break out, I dare you to take this message to the streets. If you want to see the power of God revealed in the nation, I dare you to take a trip to the nations. If you want to see the power of the Holy Ghost, the same things you read about. If you want these things to jump out from the text of the Bible and become a normative, normal experience in your life. Can you imagine, Paul, when the Bible says they were stranded on the island? I can't remember the, the name of the island. Was it Malita or something? Yes. They said he went to gather with an, 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 an asp attached itself to his hand. Paul did not begin to do the kind of dance my wife does when she sees a snake on TV. The Bible says he calmly shook it into the fire. Do you remember in Matthew 28, you should take up serpents and they will not bite you. So when Paul talks about taking up serpents and not being hurt, is he speaking from experience or is he just repeating words of a book? Experience. That's where the rubber meets the road. When you take this gospel to the streets, when you purpose to take this gospel to the streets, you will experience things that will blow your mind because that's what God ordains. The fourth thing I want to talk about, and I'm, I, I, I uh, gosh, I'm running out of time. We need to remember our past. I think maybe what we have is a grace, a memory problem, not a grace problem. Think about these lepers. Okay, by the way, you remember your past, but you don't live in the past. You don't live in the past. Because grace is not concerned with where you've been. Grace is concerned with where you're going. Grace is not concerned with what you've done. Grace is concerned with what has been done for you. But I want to submit to you, but if you do not truly appreciate what has been done for you, you do not can't appreciate where God has, is taking you. If you're not appreciative of where you're coming from, you truly never will understand where you're going. To two of the churches in the book of Revelations, two and three, the word of God said specifically, remember. To the loveless church and to the dead church. He said specifically, remember. To the Laodicean church, he gave them 
he, he inferred that they needed to remember because they had an identity crisis. They thought they were rich and they were all that. They said, no, you're poor, miserable, and wretched. And so memory, remembering is a good thing. Now, I told you about the lepers, that when they went into the Syrian camp and all of these treasures were there, that at some point it occurred to them that this is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. And they said, what we're doing is not good. I want to bet, I want to imagine that at some point, these lepers remembered their past, how they were excluded, how they were marginalized, how they were begging, how they had nothing, and so they could relate to what those people that were living between the city walls were dealing with. In other words, they got a measure of grace. They became custodians of grace by virtue of what they remembered that gave them the boldness to go where they ordinarily couldn't go. And now you may say, maybe that was the lepers. That was the story in the Bible. I would like to show you a video. And Pastor, uh, just once they see this video, I'll make a few comments and I'll quit. Uh, you can see me later and I'll, I'll talk to you about the fifth point. Can we uh, play that video, please? By the way, it starts out, it was five degrees in New York City. That's the piece that you didn't see. Five degrees in New York City.
Okay, uh, cut, cut, cut. I, I, I don't know if you missed it, but did you miss it? It was the homeless man that was sitting there. The whole world was blown by this boy. It was a homeless man. Can you imagine? I'm sure he understood what that little boy was going through. Something in him responded to the need in that boy. He took his own jacket and gave it to the boy. A homeless man was begging, reached into his pocket, and gave him, I don't know if it was a dollar, to this boy. There's something he remembered that helped him, the same thing that helped him. It's easy to watch something like this and have an emotional reaction to it. But the proper reaction we ought to have after watching this is we need to, fifth thing, reorder our priorities. We need to reorder our priorities. It's going to take a commitment of time. A commitment of time says I commit my time to do something. It says I do not have time, but I'm going to make a commitment of my time to do the things that are important. There are people that are walking by you every day. You see them in your homes. You see them in your families. You see them in your churches. You see them in your schools for the young people that are in school. They are all around you, but we're blowing right by them every day. If something like this pricks your heart and you say, today I'm going to make a commitment, the first place it's going to start is going to start with you. Then as we begin to noise his fame abroad, I'm going to challenge you. Take that gospel to the nation. Commit to be a part of something. Remember that last statement. He said, if you wait, you can do something for every, everything for everybody. And instead of something for somebody, you will do nothing for nobody. In Jesus' name, that will not be our story. God bless you. Okay. Let, let, let us pray. Renee, please come up. Let us pray. When I saw that video the first time, I, I cried. I cried. I, I mean, I literally wept. And I asked myself, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have you lost your passion for souls? Can you see people g going to a Christless eternity and forget what grace did in your life? And see that poor beggar. He gave up a dollar. He got maybe a thousand at the end of the day. So it wasn't a question of resources. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Your entrance of your word brings life. It brings understanding to the simple. Father, we recognize that we maybe do not have a fear problem. We have a memory problem. Help us to remember the work of grace in our lives. What you accomplished in our lives. Where you took us on the road from nowhere and set us on the journey to some place. Where you took us that were nothing and set our feet upon a solid rock. Father, help us to see people that walk by us every day, my Father, on the road to nowhere and become of a part of their journey to some place. Help us to be willing to share the gospel to those that you bring across our way every day. Touch our hearts, Father God, that we may commit even as uh, we go into 2015, purpose into noise your frame abroad. That will be agents in your hands, Father God, yes. to make Jesus known, not just in our neighborhoods, in our families, but in the nations of the earth. Amen. Give us the grace, Father God yes. Almighty, to do that which we must do. We give the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.